And he laid out here in verse, beginning in verse 12 of our chapter, some principles that should be applied within the body of Christ. And uh, we looked at the first couple weeks of that little series, the nature of the body of Christ in verses 12 to 13. And then we looked at the need of the members of the body of Christ from verse 14 all the way down to verse 27. And now we're going to be looking at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And uh, I just want to read for us, if you'd stand in honor of God's word this morning, just read this small portion of scripture, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 28, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues or languages. Verse 29, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you still a still more excellent way. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that these words of the Apostle Paul and being inspired by your Holy Spirit as he recorded these for us. Lord, I pray that you would apply them now to our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we're looking here at the necessity of the gifts. The necessity of the gifts. And we're talking about Paul's more excellent way. And this is kind of the second one. So if you missed the first one, you can go back and listen to that. And we talked about last week about how this starts off in uh, verse Uh, 28 there, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. And he's listing them numerically, and he's listing them really in way of importance, you might say. I mean, all the gifts are are important, but he wants to point out to the Corinthians that there are some gifts that really impact the body of Christ through his sovereign giftedness to different people. And the key of making our, the gifts that God gives us effective in the lives of, of other people, remember, God gifts us gifts of the Holy Spirit not to help us. They're not for us. So many people say, oh, I, I'm going to get edified by my gift. No, it's, it's to edify others within the body of Christ. That's what we're called to do. And so the way that works, basically is that as we use God's giftedness in us for the blessing of others, we don't want to be a burden to others, amen? We don't want our giftedness to be a burden, but we want to build people up. We want to be a blessing. We don't want to tear them down. Um, Sometimes you read of people who have certain gifts, and they say, well, that's the way God gifted me, too bad, you know? And there's a, a line of bodies behind them wherever they go. You know, that's not a good use of your your gift, And we want to make sure that we're blessing people, we're building people up. And he talked there in verse 28 that God has appointed, that God has appointed. And I pointed out there that there's this construction in the original language, mende, and it basically means on on one hand and yet now on the other hand. And he starts off here, on one hand, God has appointed first in the church apostles, prophets, and teachers. And we looked at those in depth last week. And we explained to you why there's an importance of certain gifts. We said about the apostles. Apostles, there was the giftedness of apostle. And we talked about that being 
pretty much like evangelism, like church planting. They were to go out and plant churches, and there are some people that God gifts them uniquely in that way. And uh, I've run into people who are gifted that way, and, and you know, I'll ask them what they're doing. Oh, I just planted a church in Utah, and you know, I just finished that up, and I was there 18 months, and now I'm in Arizona. It's like, well, you just move around? I mean, that doesn't appeal to me at all. <laughs> you know, why? Because I'm not gifted that way. I'm kind of a homebody. I like to settle down and get to know people and be able to minister to people. Apostles, people who are gifted in this way, are usually not interested in that. They're interested in planning a church, appointing elders, and then saying, see you later. Find yourself a pastor. I'm gone. That's what they do. And that's what the word apostle means. And so you had the office of apostleship in the New Testament church. And we talked about last week how that was the 12 apostles. And we talked in depth, if you want to get the message, about how Paul is not one of the 12. That Matthias was chosen, he was selected, and it tells us that he was numbered with the 11, meaning that the Holy Spirit knew that he was, there was 12 apostles. And their names are recorded in all eternity, Revelation tells us, on the foundation of the new uh, Jerusalem. And so those names are recorded. There's no more office of apostle. You may have the giftedness of apostles, the giftedness of church planting. That continues. And then we talked about um, how even Paul and Barnabas and even Timothy and Titus, we call them pastors, but they were really apostles. They went to places, they, they planted churches, and then they would move on. And we talked, too, about how there's a original, there's a rule the Granville Sharp rule in the original Greek, and whenever there's two nouns uh, connected by the, the word and, okay, with a definite article in front of the first noun, an example is the uh, apostles and prophets. That connects those two offices, apostles and prophets, and it makes them equal. In the New Testament, we also see that being used when we refer to someone who is a pastor slash teacher, okay? It's, it's a giftedness that God gives, and, and that's how they're, they're connected that way. But we said that the apostles were for the foundation of the church, the planning of the church. The prophets were for the preaching of the word. Once the church was planted, the prophets would go and, and, and teach the people. Um, you know, stand in front. That word prophet doesn't mean to tell the future. What does it mean? It means to stand in front of people and declare the word of God. That's what a prophet would do. Uh, they didn't come up with their own message, remember. They had the message of God. And then thirdly, we said for the progress of the church, God provided pastors or teachers. And uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, it tells us that that God has gifted certain individuals for that. And so we, we talked about the importance of these certain gifts, the apostles, the prophets, and the teacher. Well, today we want to pick up there in verse 28 with the impact of certain gifts. Certain gifts had more impact than others, uh, especially when it came to confer- confirming the spoken word of God. Remember, they didn't have a Bible back then. They couldn't go to the New Testament. They didn't, that didn't come around for another 20 years. All right? And so they had to understand if somebody's standing up and saying, I'm speaking on behalf of God, how do we know that they are speaking truth? How do we know that they are inspired by God? Well, we looked in 
Acts and we looked in Hebrews and it says that the apostles and the prophets had their offices and their ministries confirmed by what? Signs and wonders, remember? And miracles and healings, okay? All those things. And so it's interesting here in verse 28, after he talks about God has appointed first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and then he says, then. As a matter of fact, there are some other things that God has appointed as well. In the second half of verse 28, it really lists and represents several spiritual gifts, both temporary and permanent. There are some gifts that we're going to look at today that are no longer active. Um, And we'll be talking about that. We looked last week about how that's how God confirmed the message of these individuals. Um, Sometimes it uses the word wonders, signs and wonders. Um, That's used about 16 times in the New Testament. And it's usually used in connection with signs and wonders. The word sign is used about 70 times in the New Testament. And what I found out, it's kind of interesting, usually it's connected to healings, divine, supernatural, physical healings of people. But here in our text, we see, he says, then what? Miracles. Then miracles, depending on what translation you have. Uh, This was what I would call a temporary sign. This was something that was provided by God to confirm that these men were truly um, from God. Well, what is a miracle? You know, a miracle is a supernatural intrusion into the natural world as we know it. It breaks all the natural laws. And the only way that we can explain it is by divine intervention. It's not a coincidence. Sometimes we get things mixed up. You know, we, we assign miracle, the word miracle, to things that are no more than just a, maybe a coincidence. Uh, God often leads us, he helps us, and he warns us by working through other Christians, through ordinary um, circumstances, and through natural means, right? But this isn't talking about that. Miracles are something that's supernatural. You can't explain it. Uh, a miracle is an act of God that is contrary to everything we know about the ordinary working and laws of nature and physics. It's something that can be accomplished only when he divinely overrules nature and cannot otherwise occur, no matter what. Uh, John tells us in John chapter 2, verse 11, it says that Jesus turned the water what into what? Wine at a wedding feast. And it says that that was the beginning of the sign. Before that, Jesus didn't do any signs. You know, Jesus wasn't in the alley with his friends when he was a teenager going, hey, watch this one, you know. No, that's not what Jesus did. Uh, So we we have to be reminded, the the word kind of gives us constraints on this, and it says that Jesus did signs here in Canaan of Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples uh, believed in him. That was their purpose to authenticate who he was. A miracle is not provided to um, show off. <laughs> you know, you, you hear certain people, some of them are on TV, miracle worker, Brother John, the miracle worker, or whoever. And what are they doing? They're exalting themselves. They're exalting themselves. 
Uh, the miracle was not to improve, you know, your own pocketbook or show off what great power you had. Uh, even with Jesus, the working of miracles, just as the working of healing, was confirmation that, who, that he was who he said he was. He was the Messiah. He was the carrier of God's power and of God's message. And you can't dispute the miracles of Jesus. Even his enemies couldn't dispute them. Right? You remember what the, the Pharisees and all the, the, the non-believing Jews and Sadducees, they, they looked at Jesus and they said, well, we can't really dispute that he's healing people and raising people from the dead. But you know what? He doesn't do it by God's power. He does it by whose? Beelzebub, by Satan's power. Well, okay. If you're not going to dispute that it's a divine, that the miracle actually happens, but you're going to attribute it to Satan, you're pretty far gone at that point. Right? And that's really, some people say, well, what's the unforgivable sin? In, in Scripture. Well, in the time of Jesus, the unforgivable sin, the sin that there was no hope for, really, was the fact that you were looking, you were standing in front of the Messiah, the very Son of God, and he was doing miraculous things, and you understood them to be miraculous, but your heart was so hard and so filled with sin that you pointed at Jesus and said, you know what? I can't dispute what you're doing, but you're doing it by Satan's power, not God's. There's no hope. When you're turning your back on the only Savior that there is for salvation, there's no other hope. So today, if, if you wanted to say, well, what's, is there an unforgiving, unforgivable sin today? Well, technically, no, because Jesus isn't here doing miracles. I can't walk up to Jesus in the park and say, oh, I see the miracles you're doing, Jesus. You're doing it by the work of Satan. That's technically what it was in Scripture. But you can definitely come to the point where you're not willing and you're, you're turning from Christ, you're unwilling to believe that he is the Messiah. And friend, if you die believing that he is not the Messiah, that really is a, is a sin that's it's going to take you straight to hell. The sin of unbelief. But the purpose of these were to affirm who Christ was. Even in John chapter 20, Verses 30 and 31, the Bible tells us that now Jesus did many other signs. It lists a bunch of them, but it doesn't tell us all of them. It says, in the presence of his disciples. So they're not all recorded for us in Scripture. As a matter of fact, that same verse says, which are not written in this book. John's very clear. He said, oh, Jesus did a lot of other stuff that we couldn't even record. He said, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, belief is something that God calls us to do. Now, we know theologically that we can't do it without his assistance. We can't do it without his divine interaction. It's not like if you're an unbeliever here today, you're going to wake up tomorrow and go, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll try Jesus now. You know, No, it's not going to happen that way. You can't figure it out in your own flesh. The reason I know that to be true is because the Bible tells us that it's not by the will of what? Of man, but by the will of God. All right? And so the fact that you are saved by the will of God does not discount, does not discount the fact that Jesus calls you to believe on his name. He calls you to that decision in your life. And if you're a believer here today, 
You know, if you're saying, yeah, I'm, I'm a believer, Steve. Oh, really? When did you get saved? When did you come to know Christ? And your answer is, oh, I was born a Christian. And red flag, right? Wrong answer. No one's born a Christian. The Bible says we're all born in our sin. So you have to have a time where the gospel was presented to you, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the fact that you're a sinner and that God is perfect and that God provided through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect lamb of God, he provided a provision for you to have your sins forgiven. But it's not automatic. He says, hey, if, if, you, if you want this, it's a free gift. And the Bible seems to indicate it's, it's readily available. Whosoever believeth, right? So we have to stop and we have to look at that and go, wow, okay, that, that doesn't play well with my Calvinistic theology that says we're elect and everything, but that's what the Word of God says. And you have to be okay with that. In God's mind, it makes perfect sense. And so this is available to all. And he calls you to that point in your life where you're willing to submit to the Son of God because you know him to be your only hope of salvation. Um, it was, you know, Jesus provided a lot of different, performed a lot of different miracles to prove that he was being um, revealed as the Son of God. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, uh, remember Peter is um, at Pentecost here and he's telling the crowd, he's preaching, he's practicing his gift of preaching. And in verse 22 it says, Men of Israel, here's what Peter said, Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, and, look at what it says, mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. What's Peter pointing out? Peter's pointing out to them that, hey, the Messiah was here. He did supernatural things that you could not explain. Therefore, it, 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 it proves, it supports the belief that he is the Son of God. Now, he only did this for three years of his ministry. And uh, the Scripture indicates that Jesus lived a pretty normal life outside of those three years. You know, we think of Jesus as the Son of God. He was born, you know, incarnate. He was the Son of God as he was a baby. But his public ministry didn't really begin until he started doing these signs and wonders with the, the first turning the, the water into wine. Now, there was other... There was other apostles and a few other church leaders that also performed miracles. They did certain things. God enabled them supernaturally to do certain things. But the reason they did it was not to set up a tent and have a, a revival. The reason they did it was to affirm that they were speaking on behalf of God. That's why God gifted them. It was a calm, confirming uh, situation. Remember, the people didn't have the New Testament. They needed to know, how are we going to know whether these apostles and these, these prophets are speaking on behalf of Christ? Oh, wait, they're doing the same things that Jesus did. They're raising the dead. They're doing miraculous signs and wonders. 
In Acts chapter 14, it tells us that Paul and Barnabas, verse 3, spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord who was bearing witness to the word of his grace. And then it says this at the end of that verse, Acts 14.3, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. So they physically, supernaturally, had the ability to do certain supernatural things. Um, 2 Corinthians 12.12 says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Now remember, we're talking about you know, the original group plus those who were smattered, kind of spattered throughout the New Testament church. Um, they were working on behalf of the Lord. Well, just what were the miracles that the apostles did? I mean, Jesus made wine and made food and, you know, fed the hungry and all that stuff. He walked on water with Peter. Um, he, remember the one he took a, a coin out of the mouth of a fish? That was kind of weird. Um, he would disappear from a hostile crowd. They about, they, oh, we got him, we got him, and all of a sudden he's gone. Um, and he also ascended into the, the cloud, clouds to heaven. Uh, all those miracles were related to nature and were done only, only by Christ. If you look throughout the New Testament, he was the one that was doing these miraculous signs. They were, you would call them a miracle of nature. Uh, well, what miracles did the apostles do? The word for miracle is dunamis, which means power, right? Dynamite. Um, and the term is translated power in the Gospels. It's frequently connected with this. It's frequently, frequently connected with the idea of casting out demons. That's what it speaks of in Luke uh, 4.36, Luke 6.18, Luke 9.42. Luke 4.36, 6.18, and 9.42, it talks about that same giftedness was the ability to cast out demons, incredible power. It is precisely that power to cast out demons that the Lord gave to the twelve, and then also to the seventy, Luke 9 tells us, also in Luke 10. Now, lest you think you're going to go out and start casting out demons, personally, I don't believe the Scripture teaches um, that there's any such power today, um, a supernatural giftedness of that. So we, I don't think we're in the business of going around commanding demons to go out of unsaved people. That's what the disciples did. That's what the apostles did. Um, Philip and Stephen, they demonstrated the gift of miracles in Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 8. Uh, Paul used it to confirm the teaching of the Lord um, and bring a man to faith in Acts chapter 13. As a matter of fact, some Jews who tried to cast out demons without the true gift were, remember what happened to them? They got beaten up. They chased out by the demons that were trying to exercise. So this isn't something that God has, you know, there's not a, a gift of uh, casting out demons. Um, it's just like sometimes when you hear people pray and you're in a prayer meeting and someone says, yes, Lord, Lord we bind Satan in Jesus' name. It's like, what are you doing? I mean, where, where do you get that? Where does that come from? My question is always this after the prayer meeting. 
hey, you just bound Satan, right? Yeah, in Jesus' name I did it. That's funny, because the Bible says he's roaming around the earth. So either the Bible's wrong or you're wrong. And if you did bind him, what does that mean? Does that mean somebody has to unbind him? I mean, we get into this crazy spiritual world sometimes and we, we lose our minds. We don't think clearly. See, these signs accompany God's word only so long as God was revealing his word. That was the purpose. As a matter of fact, when revelations stop in the New Testament, when the New Testament canon was complete, guess what? A lot of these sign gifts stopped right along with it. Now, does that mean that God can't do miraculous things today? No, I'm not saying that. But he doesn't gift certain people with the gift of miracles or a certain person with the gift of healing. Let's look at the, the gift of healing since we, it, it mentions it here in verse 28. It says, then miracles, then gifts of healings. Um, it's plural, supporting what has been said in, in chapter 29, namely that Paul is, is speaking um, of categories of giftedness in which there could be a variety of different ones. So there's no two gifted people that are exactly the same. Remember, it's unity through what? Diversity. It's not unity because we're all the same. And the gift of healings were the first temporary sign gifts Paul mentions in this passage. And since all these gifts were in operation back then, because the Word of God wasn't even compiled yet, they were in operation back then, the sign gifts are not really placed in a separate category than the permanent gifts, because they're all operating. The word healing here is plural, and it emphasizes the many kinds of afflictions, you might say, ailments that need healing. In other words, you know, you, you just didn't, if you had the gift of healing, it wasn't like, oh, sorry, you got a broken leg. I, 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 just, I just deal with broken noses. <laughs> you know, my giftedness is just to heal, go around and heal people's broken noses. I can't help you with your leg. No. If you had the gift of healing, you could heal anything. Um, now, we believe that God still heals directly. He still heals miraculously today uh, in, in response to the prayers of his, his children. He does that. Um, we've probably all seen that to some degree where someone is, is healed. They have a tumor and they ask for prayer and then they end up going to the doctor and they're like, yeah, we can't find it. It's not an everyday thing, but it's happened. And God works through that. So we're not saying that God doesn't do these things, but we're saying that he doesn't gift certain individuals today. I would say no Christian today has the gift of healings. If you did, where would you go? I'd go to the hospital, right? I'd go start healing people, because that's what they did. And, and, and it wasn't contingent on their faith. See, that's where the faith healers get it all wrong. Well, the reason you didn't get healed in my meeting was because you didn't have enough faith, sorry. Or you didn't give enough seed and money to acquire your healing. I mean, that's, that's a bunch of garbage, you know. Um, and this is apparent because no one today can heal as Jesus and the apostles did. Think about it. These people don't go out in the hospitals. What do they do? They set up their big tent, usually in a foreign country, because 
I don't know, people are just more gullible, whatever, I don't know. But, and, and people come to them, right? And then it's all can, based on the program. You know, they have the music, the music playing, and everybody's, oh, and, you know, and then they have everybody come down, and they start hitting people on the forehead, and they're flopping around on the ground. Well, secular news agencies have done a lot of research on a lot of these faith healers today, and they've exposed them over and over again, you know, to the, to the degree where when people would send in their little prayer cards with their checks, they actually found in one individual in the dumpster, they went behind the company's dumpster, the ministry's dumpster, and they found all the prayer requests in the dumpster. <laughs> what were they doing? They are pulling a check out <laughs> and dumping the, the prayer requests, you know. Um, why? Because that's what they're interested in. They're interested in money. And so it's, it's very apparent today, when you watch any of those shows for any amount of time, you know, that it's, it's, it's a way of uh, deceiving people. You know, they'll, they'll do stupid things, like have somebody sit in a chair and, oh, your, your right leg's shorter than your left leg. Here, let me grow it. I could do that right now. And you'd go, wow, that actually grew. No, it didn't. It's an optical illusion. And these guys are masters at their craft. They've been doing it for years. And, and I think they continue to do it because, unfortunately, unfortunately, a majority of the church of Jesus Christ today is not well taught. They're gullible. And so they look at this stuff and they think, wow, okay, I'm going to send my money in. You know, he says, if I put my hand on the TV screen, then I'll be healed. I mean, it's so crazy. Just crazy stuff. And yet people are gullible enough to do that. Um, But no one can heal as Jesus and the apostles did. I mean, with one word, one touch, they would instantly and totally heal all who came to them. It wasn't based on their faith. It was based on the power that God gave them. They even raised the dead. Can you imagine that? I mean, it's one thing healing a sick person, right? But raising someone from the dead? Wow. These are supernatural things we're talking about. And the Corinthian church may have seen God perform all these through Paul or through others who had had those abilities during that time. And in the case, you know, Paul mentions them here, and he's simply reminding the Corinthians that there's a variety of ways in which God equips his people to do his work. The gift of healings, like the other sign gifts, I believe they were temporary. They were given to the church for the authentic, authentic, authentication of the apostolic message and the word of God. Um, as a matter of fact, the Great Commission does not include a call to go out and heal people. Do you ever think of that? It says, go what? Preach. Tell them the good news. Um, It's not that God became no longer interested in man's physical health or well-being. I mean, we're all interested in people's health, especially nowadays, right? But God's healing work, whether through medicine or miracles, is no longer needed to be an authenticating sign for the Scriptures. Why? Because we have the Scriptures. We have them complete. Um. And so a lot of 
a lot of people, our church is one of them, a lot of churches believe that these were temporary gifts. Like I said, God can heal, but he doesn't have to do it through a person. Um, and you know what? Even when they did heal people, um, Paul used their, Paul especially used his gift really very sparingly in this area, but it had an intended purpose to authenticate his message. But the purpose was never for bringing physical health. That's not the purpose of being healed. See, that's what we think. That's what a lot of faith healers think. Well, God doesn't want you sick. Um, Paul himself was sick, and yet God never healed him. (laughs) Nobody else healed him. Uh, Paul's dear friend Epaphroditus was terribly ill and would have died unless God intervened supernaturally. Philippians 2.27, it says, God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. What's he saying? He's saying God miraculously healed Epaphroditus. But if the apostle had the free exercise gift of healing, guess what? He could have just healed him himself. <laughs> but he didn't do it. Even when, when Timmy and other, or Tim, Timothy, another co-worker, had stomach problems. Remember this in 1 Timothy 5.23. Paul did not heal him. He didn't say in Jesus' name be healed. He didn't do that. He what? He advised him. He said, hey, drink some, some wine with this and then maybe to settle your, your uh, stomach down. By the way, that's not a uh, affirming statement for the consumption of alcohol, if that's what you're thinking. It's just saying, hey, that's what they would do back then. They, they drank quite a bit of wine. It was definitely a different kind of wine than we have today, or they all would have been drunk all the time because the water, you know, they didn't have a lot of water back then, so they would drink wine. But it was very diluted. Um, Trophimus, another associate, Paul, it says, 2 Timothy 4.20, left sick at Miletus. He didn't exercise his gift of healing there. Um, now, does a Christian have the right to go before God and ask for healing? Sure. We're, we're instructed to, to do that. And you know what? God may choose to heal you supernaturally, but he may not. And you know, the thing we forget, the thing we always forget when it comes to these gifts of healings, all these people who got healed, guess what? They died. <laughs> they died. See, that's why I say the gift of, of healing is not really for your health. It was for the glory of God. It was to to exalt God. It was to exalt his word. It was to say, hey, these guys are real. Look at what they're able to do. And, you know, if I was sick, I don't know. I mean, I I don't know if I'd pray for healing or not. I mean, you look around, and it's like, yeah. I mean, going to heaven is looking better and better every day, amen? I mean, I get it. God has a plan and a purpose. We all die on time, right? But, you know, sometimes the prospect of not being healed. Lord, just take me home. Definitely might be a better deal. Well, these are the the gifts for impact. But then also there's the illustration 
of gifts meeting the needs of the church. Look at what he says here in verse 28. He says, then miracles, gifts of healings, they're really impacted gifts. He's made a major impact on confirming the word of God. But then he also throws in there helping and administrating. Helping and administrating. The word help in the original language, antilemphis is the, is the original word. It's a beautiful word. It means to take the burden off of someone. And it's specifically interested in helping the person. You say, was well, this the gift of serving? I think they're two different gifts. Some people believe they're the same. I believe they're two different gifts. I think if you have the gift of service, as we spoke about several weeks ago, then you're the kind of person that just walks around and you see something needs to get done, and guess what? You do it. You don't have to have anybody tell you to do it. You don't care if it affects anybody if you don't do it or you do it. It's irrelevant. You see a piece of paper on the floor and you see, well, that shouldn't be there. It should be in the trash. You go over and you pick it up and you put it in the trash can. You don't say, well, that's not my job. That's a custodian's job. I'm not going to do that. No, you just have a gift of service. And it's, the difference would be helps. The gift of helps would be people-oriented. You're always looking for people that, are, that need help. You're looking around. You go, oh, oh, pastor, can I help you with this? Sure. That's great. But see, the, the person who's gifted with the gift of serving doesn't really care about the people. They just want to get it done. It's a task. That's all it is. They don't care if anybody notices. It's irrelevant. So here he mentions the gift of helps. And uh, it, it focuses on, a ta- uh, on, on the people, not just the task. It's actually used in Exodus chapter 18, verse 22. It says, um, and, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves so it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. All right? This is somebody who is interested in relieving the load on your shoulders. But then he also mentions administration. Or some people call this the gift of leadership. The gift of leadership. Um, It refers, the original language refers to a helmsman. You know what a helmsman is? Helmsman, it's not the person that owns the ship, (laughs) right? It's just the guy that's in charge of seeing that 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 ship gets into port with the cargo and gets to the right place, and everybody arrives safely. That's what a helmsman would do. Um, so it's, it's, it's administration, it's, it's governments. Uh, some translations refer it to here. In, in Acts chapter 27, it's used of a, of literally of a ship, of a, of a sea ship. Um, the root word was used by Plato, and he referred to one who knew all the times of the sky and knew the days of the year and the currents. And you think of, who would that be? It would be a navigator, right? It's somebody who is navigating whatever they're over, administrating. They're, they're navigating that. In Acts chapter 27, it says, But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. That word pilot is kind of the administrator uh, or helmsman. Um, and so we see this being used. It's interesting that these two gifts mentioned in verse 28 are not 
mentioned in uh, verses uh, 29 to 30. These are probably one of the uh, least prized gifts by the Corinthian church. Remember, the Corinthian church was a carnal church. They had a lot of gifts. They had a lot of people that were gifted, but they were using them in their flesh. (laughs) They were using them in the wrong manner with the wrong motivation. And so their whole thing was, well, how can I get more attention by the use of my gift? That's what they were focused on. So, you know, if somebody had the gift of helps in the Corinthian church, they would look at their giftedness and say, I I want that gift. (laughs) Because that guy stands in front of people and he's able to speak the word. That's what I want. I don't want to help people. And so they, they got their motives and their, their desires all mixed up. And they began to, to yearn after gifts that they didn't have. That's why we've been telling you over and over again, this is something that what God distributes sovereignly in his church. You don't get to choose what your giftedness is. In a way, that's kind of disappointing. But in another way, it's kind of relieving. It's like, thank God I don't have to pick which gift I would want or how I would use it. That's, that's up to the Lord. That's the Lord's doing, not mine. And so when you, you look at these different things here, and then at the end it talks about the involvement of the church in the exercise of the gift of languages or the gift of tongues. He not only mentions apostles and prophets in verse 29 and teachers, um, or verse 28, but then he also says then gifts of he- miracles, gifts of healings, helping, administrating, and then, by the way, various kinds of tongues. A lot of people say, well, why does he throw that kind of in there at the end? I'll tell you why. Because he's given a whole chapter to it. We're not going to talk about it today. You've got to wait. We've got to get through the love chapter, right? First Corinthians 13. Then we're going to talk a whole lot about tongues or languages, as I like to say. But he says that, you know what, there's, there's various kinds of, of giftedness of tongues or languages. Well, look at verse 29, because this is, this is also interesting. He, he begins to ask a series of questions. And the grammar here requires these questions to be read in a way that is kind of a, um, a question that you already know the answer to. Um, what he's saying basically is, are all not apostles, are they? The answer is no. Um, he's, he's not using a command here. He's not, it's not in the uh, imperative where, where we're commanded to do something. And so when you read here, because it can be kind of confusing, right? Verse 29, he says, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles? He's asking what we call, we, we say it's a rhetorical question. He's kind of saying, all are not apostles, are they? Of course not. All are not prophets. All are not teachers. All don't do miracles. Of course they don't. So he's, he's really asking rhetorical questions. The answer is no. But look at the next Verse, verse 30. He says, do all possess gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Same thing. He's saying, no, they don't. 
We're all gifted differently. The probability that these gifts could be exercised by anyone and everyone, the answer is no, they can't. Because you don't get to choose. Well, it looks like a problem here in verse 31, does it not? Look at what Paul writes. He says, but earnestly desire, that's the word zeal, desire the higher gifts. Now, a lot of people in the charismatic movement will take that verse and they'll say, see, you have to pray for tongues. You have to desire healing. You have to desire these different gifts and you have to beg God for them. That's not what Paul is saying in verse 31. And we don't really see it here in our English. All right? Because this is not a command. It's not in the imperative voice. It's, 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 it's kind of indicative. It's, it's a statement of fact. What he's doing in verse 31, he's saying, Corinthians, stop. Why are you desiring what you think to be the higher gifts. That's what he's saying. That word for desire or covet, a lot of times it's, it's used in a, um, a negative sense. And here, that's exactly what he's doing. He's saying, look, you know not everybody has the gift of apostle, a prophet, or teacher, or miracles, or healings, or speaking in tongues, or interpretation of tongues. Why? Why do you know that to be true, Corinthians? Because you know that I just told you that God sovereignly distributes his gifts. It's not up to you. So you need to stop doing what you're doing. You've got to stop desiring these, what you think to be fanciful gifts, the higher gifts. And it's really related to their perspective, to their understanding. See, when we look at it, if that was what Paul was saying, that we should earnestly desire the higher gifts, he would have just untaught everything he just taught us, right? The idea that God gives them sovereignly. The idea that you can't earn a spiritual gift. The idea that all the gifts are equal in the sense that they're needed within the body of Christ. So he would be going against his own teaching. So just remember, this is just declaring a fact that in the Corinthians' minds, they looked at these different gifts and they kind of put them in in an order of importance and an order of of desire that they want the showy gifts. Or I'd love to be able to heal people from the dead. That would be kind of cool. I mean, you know, your flesh could be appealed by that, right? I mean, think if you had the gift of healing. You could go over to, you know, uh, over to the, the nursing home and walk in and go, yeah, you're healed, you're healed, you're healed. Get out of that wheelchair, get out. I mean, think, think of the people that, wow, what a great, I mean, that would, that would, you know, be tempting. See, that's what the Corinthians were all about. They were about themselves. And you know what? When you look at the faith healers today, that's what they're all about. They're about themselves. They're lifting up themselves. The coveting of personal desire versus the sovereignty and the will of God in the distribution of gifts is very clear. All right? Um, God gives those gifts to us by his sovereign hand. And remember, we're dealing with a carnal church. So they, they fell into that 
fleshly desire very easily. And they talked about the, the whole the best gifts and all that. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not a uh, command. It's a statement of fact. And then at the end there in verse 31, he says, and I will show you still a more excellent way, the priority of a better way. Paul leaves us with that at the end of chapter uh, 12. And he says, you know what? You're doing it this way. You've got all these gifts. You're a gifted church. He never, he never argued with that. But they were using it with wrong motivation. They were using it in their flesh. And so he says, you know, there's a better way to do this, Corinthians. And a couple things about this priority of a better way. First of all, it can be seen. He doesn't even tell them what it is yet. But he says, first of all, he says, I will what? Show you. See that? It's something that can be seen. Whatever Paul's going to tell them, it's something that they can see. They can see it in themselves. They can see it in others. They can see it in Paul. But he also says a still more excellent. So not only can it be seen, but it is on a whole different level than the spiritual giftedness. It's an it's entirely different camp. It's that much better. And it also involves a, a lifestyle. Whatever it is he wants us to see here, it can be seen. It's better than the gifts that he just talked about. And it also involves a way. He says, an excellent way. It's a, it's a way, a lifestyle. So it's something that can be in your life, seen. It can be real. It far exceeds anything else which might argue uh, the importance of in your own life. And we know what it is, right? Because we have the whole Bible. I'm sure when they were reading this letter, they were thinking, oh man, gets a, what's he, what is it? What is it? <laughs> right? Well, we're going to look at it next time. But it's the four-letter word, love, right? Love. You can have all the gifts in the world, brothers and sisters, but if you don't have love, and this is what Paul is going to show us in, in chapter 13, you don't have anything, absolutely nothing. And so we need to be aware that, you know what? God may have gifted you greatly as an individual, and he wants to use you, for the blessing of his church. But you know what? You can't do it without his love shed abroad in your heart. I mean, when you think of the subject of the love of God, Dave taught on this yesterday with the men, and he just scratched the surface. Um, It's a very broad subject, the love of God. I mean, you can't even begin to fathom God's love for you. The idea that God demonstrated his love for us, it says. Why? In that we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, Christianity is one of the one religions that says, you know what? You don't have to get cleaned up. God doesn't, don't get cleaned up. You just come as you are. I'm going to take care of the cleansing. I already have. And he, he loves us that much. I mean, how much for God so loved the world, right? That what did he do? He sent his only begotten son, his only son, so that whosoever believeth in him, open invitation, would have everlasting life, have their sins forgiven, be not condemned along with the world. See, that's 
the love of God in a salvation manner. But you think of the love of God and how he cares for you each and every day. That when you're driving down the freeway and somehow he protects you when everybody else is up in a wreck. Or you're being protected daily from harm or issues to your health, COVID, or whatever you might say. I mean, see, that's why this whole thing, <laughs> dealing with the virus and everything, you know, I mean, we have to be wise. The virus is a real virus. I mean, people die from it. They do. There's a percentage. It's small, very small. But people have died from it. We're not discounting that. But see, I think when our governing authorities realize that, wow, if we put the fear in people's hearts, we can control them. We can tell them where they can go, when they can go, how they can go. We can control them to the, the point of, of telling the whole nation, well, sorry, you can't go to church. Wow, okay. And you know, we want to be obedient. We don't want to be rebellious, right? I mean, we want to be good citizens. We don't want to put people's health in jeopardy. But at the same time, you know, there's cause for pause. But then when you begin to realize and you do some research and you realize, well, it's not really what they said it was going to be. <laughs> You know, the two-week little, what they, what they call it, stop the curve or whatever it was at the beginning. I mean, think about it. This has been going on since March. I mean, this is a year unprecedented, this past year. I mean, it's just, it blows your mind what certain individuals have been able to do as far as controlling people. See, we're not controlled by that. We're not controlled by fear. You shouldn't be controlled by fear. I mean, you know what? We all die on time. And whether we die, whether we get hit by a bus or we die from the COVID virus or whatever, we're going to die on time. We're going to die according to God's plan. That doesn't mean we go out and run in front of a bus, right? I mean, we use our common sense. But at the same time, we have to realize that that's not what God has called us to. He, He doesn't call us to be fearful of these things. We don't fear men. We're called to fear only who? God. And so that's why we want to be used for his glory and for the betterment of his church. And that's why we gather together because that's so integral in part of being part of the body of Christ. I mean, there are some people that I'm sure that they're fine sitting at home on their couch, drinking their latte in their their pajamas, you know, watching some pastor on TV. That's not church. That's not church. Can you, can you benefit from it? Sure. There's some good teachers and things like that. I'm not saying that. We probably all did that for several weeks, right? At the beginning of this thing. But that's not what the church is called to do. The church is called to come out. Ecclesia, called out ones. We're called out to be together as the body of Christ, to fellowship, to pray for each other, to partake of the Lord's Supper, to be taught the word of God. And see, that's why... We want to do and continue to do what honors Christ and what honors God. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would just minister on our behalf, Lord. We thank you for your divine protection over our even small congregation here. And Lord, we we thank you that we're able to practice some safe distancing and things like that. 
But Lord, at the same time, we don't need to live in fear. And Father, we pray that you would continue to care for us as your flock. And Lord, as we continue to uh, desire to grow more and more into the image of your Son, Lord, I pray that we would continue to exercise our faith and our trust in you, the God who saved us, who secured our salvation. Surely you can protect us from a mere virus. And so, Lord, we pray that you would just uh, benefit all here today. We pray for those who may not know you, who have yet to cry out to you as their Lord and Savior. And, and I pray that you would minister your grace in their heart, even now. That, Father, you would show them their need uh, to be forgiven of their sin. Lord, we've all sinned in a myriad of ways. And, Father, we, we can't say that we're perfect. And, Lord, you're a holy God. You are perfect. And you require our sins to be forgiven. And there's only one person who was able to come and to live a life that was honoring to you and to go to a cross and to die, give up his life for ours, but then also to be raised on the third day in victory over sin and death. And Lord, we, you secure us. You secure our eternal existence through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I pray if anyone's listening who has yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I pray that they would cry out to you even now. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me through the work of Christ. I know when that's prayed from a sincere heart, desiring to yield itself to you, Lord, that you will answer that prayer. You will cause that person to be born again, born from above, to be transformed, to have your Holy Spirit deposited in their life. We pray that that work would be done by you even now as people cry out to you in trust and faith. Pray you bless our time across the way and just bless our week coming up. Pray you continue to protect us and provide for us. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen, amen.